lot of the stuff we actually do in a workshop or in an activity, it's all just a discussion tool. It's all just a way to get people talking. That's when people bond. That's when we start to learn together. That's when we get that collective intelligence where we, where we become smarter than the sum of our parts. And so for me, creating that space in those workshops is, is a really good way to kind of speed up your design process. Hi, I'm Tessa Manuelo, founder of Lego Creates, the school for the transformation of Lego services. And you're listening to the Lego Creates podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest and the most inspirational concepts and projects and discuss some of the most powerful ideas for the transformation of the Lego industry. I would like to thank you, Rich, for making the time to be here today and to share a little bit about you and what you do with the legal design methodology in Australia and, and beyond. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about you? I would love to know a little bit about your background. I think you have a very atypical background, at least when it comes to doing legal design. So uh, that would be awesome to know a bit more uh, Yeah, about how you came about to do legal design and what you did before. Yeah, great. Well, thank you for having me in uh, your metaverse, uh, Tessa. Uh, stoked to be here. I'm Rich Brophy. I uh, am a partner and strategic designer at Pickalink, which is a legal design studio all the way down in Australia. Uh, just for a little bit of context, our business is really about bringing an objective customer lens to legal brands so we can improve access to design um, and I, I think it's important to say that I'm not a lawyer or not legally trained. Our proposition is really about bringing that outsider objective lens and melding that with the experienced legal people inside an organisation uh, in order to find solutions that work better for the business and for users or clients or humans or people or whatever you want to call them. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. I've had a long and wonky career uh, to get to this point, which I'm sure, you know, this podcast is called Legal Creatives. I reckon there's a lot of people that have had a wonky uh, journey to where they are. For me, it started a long time ago. I was a stand-up comedian for a very long time, working around the world, telling jokes, really kind of unifying audiences or rooms full of strangers. Uh, through stories, through jokes. And I did that for about 10 years. Uh, like I said, traveled the world, did some amazing festivals, worked with some really great people, but eventually had enough and moved from stand-up comedy into advertising, which someone explained uh, an ad is a lot like um, a joke, only the brand is the punchline. And I thought mm -hmm. that's kind of an easy, easy leap from where I am into a um, professional career. Then I was working in advertising and I read this amazing book called Baked In, which is about how good story, good products have a story that's inherent to them rather than um, a bad product, which has a story laid over the top. And I thought, wait a minute, why am I writing these stories for terrible products? I should be creating mm -hmm. better products. Yeah. I sort of took the initiative to start building some products of my own, uh, just silly little bits of hardware that I launched on Kickstarter looked for a repeatable process, found design, started running community workshops to get 
my head around the facilitation aspect of it. Uh, ended up working in an innovation consultancy when I learned about the work that I've been doing um, and have been working in product and service design for a few years since then. And a couple of years ago, I started this business with uh, my brother, Alex Brophy, who's a, a comm strategist. Mm-hmm. And we just, we'd seen this opportunity in the legal space, you know, an industry sort of in the, um, in the starting stages of disruption and, you know, it's a, it's a industry with such huge potential for impact and like geared towards impact, but there's these processes, products, services, mindsets that just aren't human centric or client centric. And yeah. uh, we just thought there's a huge opportunity here. And if we can find the right people to work with, then um, we can make a meaningful difference. Yeah, absolutely. That's it. That's, That's really amazing. And um I'm super curious to know, in your opinion, what would be a good definition of legal design? Well, the definition that I use is, you know, the application of design thinking to legal processes, legal services, legal experiences. But in terms, as a practitioner, and because I suppose we're speaking to fellow practitioners in this space, I think the idea of us talking about design thinking is a little bit limiting. I think that actually there's so many different practices, you know, creative and analytical that we can bring into this process that I think actually it's, it is about that. It's about being analytical and creative as we look for ways to um, improve the status quo of the legal industry. Yeah, I love that uh, definition because it's so broad and it encompasses uh, many possibilities and it allows for creativity also to generate and implement new solutions. In the beginning, when you started uh, to work in the law with the methodology, I'm super curious to know if there were some any challenges or obstacles that you had to overcome. Uh, you know, coming from a creative background and uh, innovation strategies, working in the law. It's, uh, it's considered to be quite a specific and niche and different. Um, so I'm super curious about those obstacles and challenges and also what kept you going and what kept you motivated to, to keep going. Yeah, well, I suppose I'm lucky enough to have, you know, those careers of uh, telling jokes and writing ads and trying to build products. Uh, full of failure and frustration and you learn a lot of lessons. You learn patience and resilience. And so uh, that set me in good stead for working in legal design. Some of the biggest challenges uh, that we've kind of come across in the last few years. uh, One is, I guess from our perspective, a lot of businesses are already doing well enough. You know, they're making enough money or they're getting enough funding. And so the impetus to create, you know, client centric experiences to put everything under the microscope in order to improve outcomes, that impetus is not there. There's no real burning platform. And for me, that's, you know, as as we would all probably say, you know, it's so obvious, of course, there should be more uh, client centric, but, um, business owners don't necessarily see it that way. It maybe is, it can provide an incremental improvement to the bottom line or the experience. And so um, I think for me, when I saw 
where the legal industry is and saw the opportunity for design, I thought we are going to have people beating down our door to do this stuff. But actually, you need to find people who believe in the long-term value of design in order to actually get that work going. Or you need people with a real burning platform. You know, they're losing staff. Uh, they're not um, they're not getting referrals for clients or they're just overworked, not working in an efficient or effective way. They're the... Uh, you need to work with people who uh, are invested in the value of design, I suppose, or the, the value that it can provide. Um, so for me, that was the, that was probably the biggest um, kind of initial barrier, I think, in terms of more detailed practice-based stuff, definitely that hesitancy to try, or I remember someone quite early on saying, we're lawyers. We have been, we've had it drilled into us from day one, never be wrong. So when you come in here and explain that we need to test and learn, that goes against everything we've ever believed in. And so um, that's definitely a big challenge uh, for me. There's a few things that I've done to work around that. One is like really being smarter with research. How much work can we do? How much can we learn before we get to that point where we need to take that leap of faith? Um, and Another thing is like looking at low stakes experiments, you know, doesn't necessarily have to be building the thing and putting in a live environment. There are, you know, you can test assumptions in a bunch of different ways. It doesn't need to be something that, uh, you know, you don't have to create a prototype that you believe is right in order to validate an assumption. You can create, you know, a flyer, a brochure, something that is a little way from what we're actually trying to design. And that kind of takes the heat or anxiety away from creating something that's not quite right. Time for a quick break, but we'll be right back. If you enjoy this podcast, visit legalcreatives.com slash now and be part of the world's greatest legal design innovation platform. Get access and be coached on the most innovative methods, mindsets and techniques and be part of a community of 10,000 plus legal professionals who come together across the world to transform their legal services and documents, to create the most fulfilling legal practice, and experience the most epic learning journey of their lifetime. All part of Legal Creatives membership. A community and a platform that is essential to any legal professional who want to transform their practice, build better brands and win new customers, creating the legal services of the future today go to legalcreatives.com now to get started or if you're already on this journey visit your platform to keep growing welcome back to our conversation how did you overcome this obstacle how did you try anything that helped unlock more of the experimental mindsets in the for, for your clients and and in your team what are some of the things you do to kind of you know break through that mindset that everything needs to be perfect the first time and if it's not it's a failure um how do you go about yeah. overcoming that perception and uh kind of uh, willingness to be perfect the first time. So for me as a 
designer, I think the practice of design is a, a mechanism for change as well. You don't just have to build a thing and then create a different world. The process that you go through is also part of you know, the change you're trying to create in the world. Um, I think as humans, we make progress by having discussions, by talking things through, by slowly building trust, by landing on some really broad stuff like the principles by which we design or the vision that we're trying to achieve. I think when people are not willing to hand themselves over to the process that we as creative innovators um, are so familiar with, then it's really about um, just putting the brakes on and working at a pace that people are um, willing to move at. You know, mm -hmm. you don't want to be pushing people to start testing stuff or pushing stuff live if they're not comfortable with it. And so I think sitting in that space, explaining it, talking about the different dimensions, even if it's just like a little bit of copy on a website to explain, this is why it's written. This is the objective of the piece of copy. The way it's written is for these reasons. I think when people understand that there is intent behind everything, that we've designed, which there always should be as a designer, then that starts to alleviate some of those anxieties and concerns. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the other thing is um, just sort of uh, kind of like, I, I like to call them like design interventions. How do we have those moments that make the need for what we're doing really clear? So something that we've done with a few clients, which is really low stake stuff, but if we're, um, some, of, some of the stuff we do is website design, right? Which is not transformative design, but um, it's an important step in that journey. And one of the things we've done with clients is said, look, this is your website, right? This is your competitor's website. Let's go through your competitor's website. Count how many times they talk about themselves um, or show photos of themselves versus mm -hmm. how many times they show photos or talk about their users. And that's not a sign of a human-centered organization necessarily, but what it is is a shorthand way for people to go, oh my God, our competitors who we don't want to be like, so obsessed by themselves, they talk about themselves 35 times before <laughs> they ever mention their client or their customer. And it's moments like that where people kind of go, oh, all right, I get it. This needs to be focused on the people who are using the service. And it's not by criticizing me that you've helped me realize that, but it's by looking at um, the people around us and the mistakes others are making. And so what I've seen is, um, you know, clients then talking about the obsession of their competitors with themselves. And it almost becomes a point of difference, a point of identity for people who are trying to do law differently. And I think that's really nice when you get a moment to kind of uh, comprehend some moment of insight, right? To like, what what are we actually doing here and why is it important? That's a pretty basic example, but that's a good example of, um, yeah, a way to help people see the need for or the opportunity for um, human-centered design and the things that come with it. Because if you're just trying to sell someone on, no, 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 we just need to, make a quick and dirty version and get it out there. If you're in that moment, in that conversation, trying to convince someone, they made their mind up, you know, 
two weeks ago on this project that they weren't going to be comfortable with this sort of thing. I think if you get to that point where you're starting to yeah, design test prototypes, you need people on board a long time before that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. This is really great. And uh, can you maybe share one of the last projects you've been working on? What was it about? Um, is it so we can get to know a little bit more? Yeah, about the work you do. Yeah, so probably the most project that's most interesting for me at the moment is we're working uh, on self um, self guided resources for people self representing. Uh, in the family court, and it's actually uh, we're actually working with citizen-led design. Someone approached us who have been through this experience, had a terrible time, and the reason that it's interesting is one, family law is fundamentally broken <laughs> in Australia, and so just having a reason to sink our teeth in and start poking around under the hood is uh, really exciting for us, but. The other thing that's interesting is that we're working with someone who started with a solution, and that actually happens a lot. Uh, you know, in the design world, you start with a stakeholder who has a solution. But um, what I think what we are like, what we tend to do is tell people, throw out your solution. We need to understand the problem first. Mm-hmm. But I've started using I've started using these solutions as a way to actually drive the design forward. So. One of the first activities we did is they talked about this solution and we kind of wrote up a bit of a description of what this solution looked like, how it worked, that kind of thing, just whatever details are important to them. Let them have their say. And then we did an activity where we're like, all right, what are all the assumptions that this solution is predicated on? What are the things that need to be true in order for this thing to work? And so then you end up with a whole bunch of assumptions under desirability, a whole bunch under feasibility, a whole bunch under viability, a whole bunch under sustainability. And then we can prioritize those. And instead of kind of doing that broad research approach that we do in the discovery phase, where we just try and understand all the context, Mm -hmm. it's actually quite pointed. We're working through this list quite methodically of the different assumptions that we have and trying to validate or invalidate them so that we can kind of make progress. Maybe their solution is perfect and we validate everything. Actually not the case, as you would expect. Um, but what we've got is a really nice way to say, all right, what are you working on today? What what assumptions are you trying to validate? All right, let's go away and do it, come back, report back, see where we see where we sit. They call it the riskiest assumption test in mm-hmm. some fields of design. And it's just like it's a I find it's a really nice way and it's been really been a really interesting way to explore the space through this lens of I have an assumption let's work out if it's uh, right or not Mm -hmm. and so that means there's a lot we can do before we actually try and sit down and do um, customer interviews or prototyping and testing that kind of stuff which I think you know we've got to be smart (laughs) with the time we have and that felt like an efficient way to work with the existing, with the behavior that the uh, client had shown of saying, I've already got a thing. Um, so we're not teaching anyone the double diamond process. We're just going, what have we got? Great, let's start working. We have a structure that we can apply to move this thing forward. Yeah, absolutely. So that's where we're at. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree with what you said. You, 
you you because at Lego Creative, for example, we specialize in teaching the process, but whenever we use a process, we don't always need to teach because then it's just uh, taking so much time. So it's better to just uh, follow the steps and follow the process, communicate that obviously with the clients so they're aware, like you mentioned, having these conversations, discussions, explaining the reason why we do things. And um, I think this is a really great and really simple tip. So uh, thanks for sharing that. And I'm curious to know about the tools you use to work on your projects and also the tools you use to engage your client in this legal design process uh, with you. Uh, what are some of the tools you use and how, use, how useful are they for you to be able to uh, achieve your goals with your customers? So I guess tools can be probably tech or um, actual design tools. I think in terms of our tech stacks and stuff that we use that really helps is um, obviously Google Docs is just a way to collaborate live and it sets a precedent that, hey, everything is a draft and we're all working on this together. Um, getting people into those is quite helpful. And the checklist feature in Google Docs has been super helpful for helping lawyers know where to jump to and what's required of them to contribute. Uh, I'm obsessed by Miro. Uh, I just <laughs> think online, Me too. you know, those digital whiteboards <laughs> are just have changed the way my brain is wired. And um, I'm slowly working on doing the same to everyone else. I think it really gives you the chance to be, um, to create like almost a visual narrative of the project. And it's a really nice way for people to see where we've been, where we're going to next. Mm -hmm. um, and it makes those online, it doesn't make online engagements fun. That's a lie. But what it does do is you can create like really intuitive, simple activities and experiences that help drive those conversations that mean we can actually make progress together. And you can make it fun or serious or, um, full of data or really lightweight, depending on the needs of the client and the, kind of the point you are on the project. Um, but the stuff that I'm more interested in is obviously the design tools. Uh, one of my favorite things to use is provocative prototyping, which is uh, really quite early on in the design process, actually just coming up with some really basic uh, concepts and getting them in front of users in order to, I I'd like to trademark this phrase, but like poke their brain and just see how people respond to different things instead of waiting till we're at the right time in the process to start going, okay, so this is our hypothesis and this is how we're going to design out the prototype. We can actually just say, hey, I've got a hunch it's this, you've got a hunch that it's that, let's just dummy up some really high level concepts and put them in front of people and just get them talking and start hearing rather than maybe doing the research and like, you know, doing a research interview and asking all those contextual questions. They're very valuable, but I think if you partner those with provocative prototypes, then um, you start to poke their brain and elicit responses that you wouldn't get through a normal line of questioning. Um, and the other thing that I love, 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 uh, which I've kind of introduced to my process is um, kind of preloading workshops. So uh, instead of getting people to do the stuff 
in the room. I like to send out a survey first to get input so that people who think at different speeds and in different ways have time to actually reflect and think about what their response would be to some of the provocations in the workshop. And then I send a, a Loom video, which is a screen recording thing, to talk people through how the workshop's going to work and how it's going to roll. And then when we're in that workshop, people have already made their contributions, have already understood the context that we're working in or playing in. Uh, and then it just creates that space for really high value conversations and discussions. And for me, the simpler that workshop is, the better. A lot of the time, all you need to do is say, hey, these are all your inputs, let's group them, or let's rank them. Um, let's cluster them, you know, and, and the conversation that happens around that, like that's the, that's the juice, that's when the smarts come out, that's when the new insights um, or perspectives kind of bubble to the surface. And for me, a lot of the stuff we actually do in a workshop or in an activity is, it's all just a discussion tool. It's all just a way to get people talking because like we said at the start, that's when people bond, that's when we start to learn together. That's when we get that collective intelligence where we, where we become smarter than the sum of our parts. And yeah, so for me, creating that space in those workshops is just, if you can get people to do the pre-work, is a really good way to kind of speed up your design process and respect the time of some very expensive individuals. Absolutely. Such a such a great one, such a great tip. And also, I would imagine that prep work also helps, you know, make everybody engaged in this process, uh, excited potentially for the workshop too. And uh, that definitely is great to warm up the audience before. So that's a really great tip, Rich. Thanks for sharing. And I'm, I'm, I'm interested and curious to know what, you know, through all this, those projects and this transition you've done from working in the creative space to working with lawyers in the law, what is one thing that surprised you that you have learned working with the legal design methodology? Look, this is a bit of a, a boring answer and maybe more of a shrewd business answer, but something that surprises me is that most of the solutions already exist. Not perfect solutions, but the problems we have or the challenges that our users are facing very often something that exists that's been applied and proven out in a different industry that we can pick up and do 80% of the job. I think that not everything needs to be resolved with an off-the-shelf solution. I think that's bad practice, terrible practice, but I think what, what it means is that as legal designers, we can really be, um, instead of just saying, yes, design is the answer, what are we going to do? We can say, all right, well, we don't need to think so deeply about those problems over there because there are pretty good solutions we can plug in. The real juicy problem that no one else has solved is over here. Let's spend our time, let's invest our effort and our resources into solving that. And I think that's, um, yeah, it has been surprising that there's so much stuff that, um, 
that can just be dropped in or leveraged or adapted to solve a lot of the struggles in the legal space. But, um, but yeah, from that comes that opportunity to just, you know, find a problem that's really worth solving. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes as designers, we get seduced by our process and how we should apply it to everything and how there is a very diligent process that we can follow to get to a solution. But as designers as well, we always need to step back and step back and step back and see the bigger picture, the bigger picture and the bigger picture. And that helps us go, bang, that's the problem we should be solving. Let's, let's work on that. Yeah, really love that. The other, the other thing about that, about leveraging what already exists is if you are a legal designer, a legal innovator, and you're not in a design-led organisation or an innovation mature organisation, implementing a solution that already exists starts to give you that momentum and show the value of having you in the room or have you look at problems people's eyes are attracted to things that move. And I think that if you can start to show your value in small ways quickly, you'll actually find that um, you start to build momentum and support. And that's when, that's when design really pays dividends when the people, when the people at the top are supportive and investing. And when the people that you're working alongside are leaning in and engaged and want to contribute. And the be- I think the best way to do that is to show some progress, uh, create some momentum, solve a problem quickly and efficiently. It doesn't need to be clever and creative and original. It just needs to be effective and then use that momentum to really, again, get stuck into those problems that are sticky and interesting and yet to be resolved. And my last question, um, Rich, is what's your next step? Is there anything we can do to help you? And also, how can we reach out if you would like, if some of the audience would like to continue this conversation and connect with you? Yeah. LinkedIn is the best place to hit me up. Um, fairly responsive on there. Uh, I'll, uh, I think I can share my um, details with you, Tessa, and you can drop it in the uh, link. But yeah, Rich Brophy is my name. Uh, if you want to look me up. Uh, what am I interested in? I'm really interested in, we call it, I don't know if it's a global thing, but in Australia, the missing middle, people who don't qualify for legal aid or community services, but can't afford private legal fees. There's a big gap in there, a huge unaddressed need. And I'm really interested in, uh, in the ways that though that gap is being bridged and the the needs of people in that kind of definitely the civil and family legal space are being met, whether that's through tech, whether that's through stuff like low bono. Um, there's a lot of interesting solutions out there. If you're working on stuff, I have some ideas for stuff in that space, or you want to work with us on that, that kind of thing, please hit me up. Our business is called Pickalink. You can find us on uh, the world's largest search engine. And um, yeah, let's that's chat. awesome. Well, thank you so much, uh, Rich, for uh, visiting us in the metaverse and uh, sharing all the. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. <laughs> How you've been enjoying this experience of the metaverse? What is one thing that struck you from uh, the oh. metaverse experience? 
uh, I felt a bit like my dad trying to play a video game where I don't actually couldn't understand the controls, and that was uh, quite obvious to everyone in this metaverse. Um, it's funny. I, I, it's a it's a comparable experience to a video chat, I suppose, but um, with nicer furnishings. I love what you've done with the place, Tessa. Well, thank you so much for uh, the great feedback. And I think the metaverse only gets easier and easier as you use it. And um, and so I'm, I, I hope you're going to visit again. Um, and uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. such a great experience uh, compared to a Zoom call <laughs> where we are in 2D. Here we are in 3D. We can move around in the space. And uh, I'm just a fan of the tool. And I think it's a great addition to the tech stack we already can use. Um, but ma making it a little bit more engaging and interactive. So, uh, well, I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, thank you so, so much, Rich, for tuning in. It's also really late in Australia for you. And so I'm really grateful you're making the time and you accepted to share. And I'm really excited uh, we got to connect. And uh, I can't wait to, yeah, stay in touch with you and, uh, and, uh, and uh, see how you're going to, what you're going to do to solve this tricky problem of uh, accessibility of justice and uh, making the experience a lot smoother and a, a lot easier and a lot more effective uh, for the litigants and uh, the justice users. So that's really awesome. Anything else you would like to add before we go? No, keep up the good work. Keep being creative. Awesome. Well, thank you so much once again for being here today. My pleasure. Thanks, Tessa. If you like the Legal Creatives podcast, take the next step. Become a Legal Creatives member. Imagine being coached on the most innovative methods, mindsets and techniques that successfully and effectively transform legal services into experiences client love, recommend, and use again, and again. When you access the platform, you don't just access courses, but create a career where you feel more fulfilled, more productive, and become more profitable. You also become part of a community of legal professionals who are the most supportive, incredibly dedicated individuals to transforming legal services. Get access today to a community and a platform that is essential to any legal professional who want to transform their practice, build better brands and win new customers, creating the legal services of the future today. Go to legalcreatives.com now to get started. Or if you're already in this journey, visit your platform to keep growing.